Welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. I want to acknowledge the inspiration for part of this episode. Pastor Stephanie Motor, one of my mentors and the associate pastor at my church, Berean, recently taught a series on angels and shed some light on these somewhat mysterious beings. In addition, the youth group at Berean was very curious to know more about angels and demons, and so they also have been inadvertently helpful in launching this next mini-series within the season. So thanks, kids. Much of what Western culture seems to believe about angels is not actually found in the Bible, but from centuries of tradition, art, mythology, and apocryphal literature. Today, we use the word angel to describe a particularly beautiful or well-behaved child, or a person who rescues or relieves us in a sticky situation. We have in our collective mind the image of a pale-skinned, white-robed, winged human, perfectly proportioned, male or female, often with long, flowing golden hair. There's a gleaming circle of light called a halo atop those lovely locks. The angel holds a harp, perhaps, or a lyre, if a warrior, then a sword. His or her expression is usually one of otherworldly serenity, almost disconnected from our realm. That's not accurate. Nor is, I'm sorry, Supernatural fans, Misha Collins' portrayal of Castile in the beloved Until the Last Episode fantasy series, or Harry Travers' second-class wingless angel Clarence, introduced in the film It's a Wonderful Life. And Charlie's angels? <laughs> not even close. So what are angels really like, and when and how did we get things so wrong about them? By now, you know that I do believe the Bible is true, so for me, that's where I need to start. Okay, so let's break it down. Do angels have wings? The answer, according to scripture, is no and yes. Specifically, in the Old Testament, we get three different types of angelic creatures. The first are cherubim the second seraphim, and the third is really a rank of angel, an archangel. Cherubim are not the adorable, chubby-cheeked, rosy-faced, winged infants so frequently seen in Renaissance paintings. Well, at least not the cherubim in the Bible. Instead, a cherub, or cherubim plural, which is referenced nearly 100 times in the Bible, is uh, described by the prophet Ezekiel as having four wings and four faces, one of a man, one of a bull or ox, one of a lion, and one of an eagle. So already the cute little baby image is totally out the door. Their bodies and wings are also covered in eyes. To read the description for yourself, you can go to Ezekiel 10. We also know that at least one point, cherubim were assigned as guardians to protect Eden after Adam and Eve's sin led to their expulsion from the garden. And this is mentioned in Genesis 3.24. Cherubim appear again in the Old Testament during the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. Incidentally, my fellow Harrison Ford fans, the Ark as depicted in the Indiana Jones films is thought to be fairly close to the biblical description, which is rather surprising considering the artistic license Hollywood tends to take, especially with religious paraphernalia. 
In Exodus, Moses is commanded to create the ark and adorn the lid with the images of two cherubim, wings outstretched facing each other. God's presence was said to rest upon the cherubim, and the ark, which was carried in accordance to the Lord's very specific instructions, was to go everywhere the Hebrew nation went. Images of cherubim were also woven into tapestries in the tabernacle and the temple, and they are also thought to be the creatures in John's vision described in the book of Revelation chapter 4. Another category of angels is the seraphim, seraph being the singular. A seraph means fiery one and are not mentioned anywhere near as often as cherubim, nor are they described in the same kind of detail. However, Isaiah tells us that they each have six wings, and they reside above God's throne, calling to each other in booming voices, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It is hinted that either their words or voices can open doors and conjure smoke. In Isaiah's vision, a seraph hears him lament that he has unclean lips and does not deserve to be before God. The seraph brings forth from the altar of God a hot coal to purify and refine Isaiah's words. This is relayed in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. Two archangels are named in the Bible. As I said earlier, archangel is a rank, not a type of angel. Michael, whose name is a rhetorical question asking who is like God, is first identified by name in the book of Daniel, where he is called the defender of Daniel's nation. And he played a role in ensuring that the answer to Daniel's prayers were delivered. He is called in Jude 1, 9, one of the mightiest of the angels. In Revelation 12, 7, he is identified as one of many angels who are opposing the dragon or the enemy. Gabriel, whose name means God is my strong man or God is my hero, is first named like Michael in the book of Daniel when he interprets a vision for the prophet. Later, we see him in a very familiar story as the messenger who tells the Virgin Mary of her impending pregnancy. However, not everyone realizes that Gabriel first appeared in the temple of God to Zechariah, a relative of Mary's by marriage. The angel told him his wife Elizabeth, who was barren and past childbearing age, would have a son and call him John. When Zechariah questioned him, Gabriel asserted that he stands in the very presence of God and implied that Zechariah had no right to doubt his words. In fact, Zechariah was unable to speak until his son was born. He and Elizabeth were delighted that the prophecy came true, and less than a year later, they welcomed baby John into their lives. In the apocryphal book of Enoch, accepted as canon only by certain Eastern Orthodox sects of Christianity and also a very small group of Ethiopian Jews, two additional archangels are named, Raphael, whose name means God heals, and Uriel, or God is my light. Incidentally, and a little bit off topic, when my husband and I were looking for a name for our second son, Raphael was actually on the short list, and no, it was not actually because of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We actually liked the name and also liked what it meant. Moving on. Unnamed angels appear in the scriptures as well. In fact, thousands upon thousands of them. The heavenly host, or the angels who sided with God after Satan's attempted coup, 
number in the hundreds upon thousands. In Genesis 16, an angel appears to Hagar, Abraham's pregnant runaway servant, and tells her about her child's destiny. Later in the same book, she hears again from an angel who encourages her when she and her son Ishmael were abandoned and upset to the point of hopelessness. Unnamed angels rescued Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and an angel prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. Angels appeared in visions and dreams and gave advice to Jacob about how to grow his flocks. The angel of the Lord appeared in the fire of the burning bush to speak with Moses and the angel of death destroyed the firstborns of Egypt later in the same narrative. An angel helped to guide the Israelites through the wilderness into the promised land. An angel instructed Joseph how to protect Mary and Jesus from the violence and danger of King Herod. A large group, referred to as a vast host or an army of angels, sang in the sky above Bethlehem to herald the birth of the Christ. There are dozens more references to angels, and they nearly always act as messengers or advisors. They are seen interpreting dreams, visions, or circumstances. They are seen responding to prayer, delivering messages, or speaking prophetically. They also come to deliver God's justice, and on occasion, it gets pretty messy. But they're not described as the ethereal beings we often see in medieval and Renaissance paintings. In fact, if there are angels aside from cherubim and seraphim, which seems likely, we don't know exactly what they look like, but we do know they must appear imposing, even terrifying, for frequently an angel's first words to his assigned human are, be not afraid or fear not. We also know they can appear in the form of men, as they did when they posed as simple travelers and rescued Lot from Sodom. They also did this after Jesus was raised from the dead and the tearful women approached the tomb to pay respect to their beloved teacher. These men were dressed in blindingly white robes and appeared as men, but the women somehow knew them to be angels and bowed down, dazzled and afraid. We can also learn about the nature of angels from the scriptures. We learn what they can and cannot do. Among other things, we know they were created by God. The book of Nehemiah, in chapter 9, verse 6, asserts to God, You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all, and the angels of heaven worship you. Throughout scripture, there are scattered additional hints about the nature of angels. Now, please bear with me if you're not accustomed to the reading of the scripture, but the following passage very clearly and beautifully explains some things about humans, angels, and the relationship of Jesus with both of them. So here we go. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? or a son of man that you should care for him. 
Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, because he suffered death for us. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I am the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. That was Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. We learn here that we as humans have something the angels can never possess. The potential for redemption. Jesus did not die on the cross for the benefit of angel kind, but of mankind. Thus, angels cannot accept the sacrifice of Christ and cannot know the redemption which is made available to us. In the same vein, angels, as powerful as they may be, are not worthy of our worship. Repeatedly in the Bible, angels shrink away when humans accidentally honor them as they should honor God. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, admonishes that they, quote, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, end quote. In context, he is exempting believers in Colossae from subscribing to the overly legalistic traditions which embrace human custom over the grace of God. And he's also warning against the teachings of some Colossian Christians who had become overly interested in studying the workings of the angelic host as opposed to making efforts to become more like Christ. Which is a good warning for us, too. Because a lot of what we as Americans in 2020 seem to believe about angels has actually come to us through the awkward and sort of generally weird lens of a man named Emanuel Swedenborg. Reader's Digest version of this guy's life. He lived from 1688 to 1772 in Sweden. He was, at various times in his life, and sometimes all at once, a writer, theologian, 
mystic, scientist, and philosopher. According to him, Jesus Christ had commanded him to write numerous doctrines in order to reform Christianity. He claims to have had frequent conversations with both angels and demons and visited heaven and hell. Now that alone doesn't weird me out about Swedenborg. To be honest, many different religious leaders have made similar claims since Jesus was raised from the dead, so I take that with a grain of salt. When you begin to weed through his dozens of published and unpublished works, though, you begin to see some rhetoric that doesn't jive with the scriptures, which for me is a major red flag. He states that he spoke with spirits from different planets and from beyond our own solar system, and he also insisted that life existed on every other planet. He asserted also that angels had once lived as humans, and they will do so again. In short, angels and humans are in a constant cycle of reincarnation with each other. Now, this theory, as it trickled down to us, may be why so many of us try to comfort friends who have lost a loved one by saying, upon the death of the loved one, that heaven has gained another angel. Now, there's absolutely no scriptural basis for this, and it actually directly conflicts with the entire message of Christianity. If humans die and simply become angels, the redemption of mankind by Christ's death would be completely unnecessary. Like the Renaissance artists who gave us the images of angels with pearly skin and flowing hair, Swedenborg has gifted us with a similar cliché. In his opinion, all humans had, living within them, at least two angels and two demons. Today, you might recognize that teaching when you watch cartoons or read comics, and you see the tiny red-clad devil on one shoulder and the saintly white-robed angel figure on the other. Some thought Swedenborg was a true mystic who heard from heaven and faithfully shared what he learned. Others thought he was suffering from a mental illness. What we do know is that he never attempted to found his own church or religious organization and didn't seek to make a lot of money from his works. Now, ultimately, in my opinion, his writings might, like the Book of Enoch, be an interesting read, but as they directly contradict the Bible in parts, I can't see them as anything other than fiction mixed with some fragmented portions of truth. Next time, dear friends, we will be discussing demons an appropriate topic to round out the hellish year that 2020 has been, don't you think? Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. You can reach me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com, my website at retrofitted.podbean.com, or my Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash retrofittedpodcast. Whichever platform you use to listen, please consider leaving a review so others can enjoy the series too. If you are considering financially supporting this podcast and its associated endeavors, please visit patreon.com backslash Rebecca Godlove. As always, be wise and be well. song is Lifted Up by Ryan Anderson.